I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. I call attention to the sermon outline on the back of your bulletin, not only because I want you to be my junior partners in preaching this this week to whomever the Lord may send in your direction, but also because later in my message today, we will have a seven-question test. <laughs> and you will have to evaluate yourself, and so you'll need those questions in front of you. Our scripture for the morning is from the second letter of Peter, chapter 1. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Even from an early age, our elder son, Brad, had an obsession with basketball. Even as a preschooler, he spent endless hours on our backyard court, dribbling and shooting. And every year I had to raise the goal as he got taller. And he had good athletic ability. His dream was to be a college basketball player. And in high school, it looked like there was good promise there. But when he realized that he was not lightning fast, he knew that height would be the key. 
And there was the problem. His mother is 5'1", and I'm 5'10", and he topped out at 5'11". From time to time, he would fuss at us for not being taller. <laughs> and there was nothing we could do about that. And I promise that if he had discovered some method of traction that would stretch him five or six inches, he would have volunteered and begged me to fund it. But physical growth is not something we can control. I mean, it's a matter of genetics. There's just little we can do about it. On the other hand, our spiritual growth is wide open. The sky's the limit. And indeed, St. Paul urged all Christians to grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Every Christian is either growing or declining spiritually, never standing still. Are you a growing Christian? I want you to think about how many of Jesus' parables focused on growth. He talked about three kinds of soils. And you remember the fertile soil produced 30 or 60 or 100 times as much seed as was sown. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, but it produces the largest of garden plants. Remember the parable of the talents. Jesus praised those servants who multiplied their talents, 50%, 100%. And Jesus pointed to the lilies of the field, and he said, see how they grow. They don't labor, they don't spin, and yet God gives them growth. And again, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a man sowing seed. The seed sprouts and grows, he said, though it does not know how. Jesus taught that a Christian is either growing or declining spiritually, but never standing still. Jesus intends for us to grow. When I hear a Christian tell me about some great work that God did in his or her life 25 years ago, I rejoice. When I hear this person tell about it the second time, I rejoice again. But when I hear them tell about it the third time, I'm tempted to ask, has God done anything in your life lately? Are you growing in Christ. I heard about a little girl whose parents dropped her off every Sunday at 10 for Sunday school, and then they went to a nearby restaurant for breakfast and then came back at 11 and took her to worship with them. One day she asked uh, her dad, she said, Dad, why don't you go to Sunday school? He said, I don't need to. My faith is established. A couple of weeks later, they went to their vacation getaway place. They had a little house in the country on a fish pond. And uh, the last mile or two to that getaway place was over unpaved road, and it had been raining a whole lot. And so the car got bogged down on this red clay road. And the more the father spun those wheels, the more it sank. Finally, he just turned off the engine and sat there wondering what he would do next. From the back seat, his daughter said, Dad, I think our car is established. 
And mom and dad got the message because the next Sunday, they were in Sunday school. Every Christian is either growing or declining, but never standing still. Are you a growing Christian? My message this morning is based on the first 11 verses of the first chapter of 2 Peter. Give you a setting for this. Uh, uh, Peter was in jail, Roman jail. His friend Silas was there, perhaps uh, taking down notes for this letter. He wrote this letter just a year or two before he was martyred by the Emperor Nero. And this letter was sent to all the churches in Asia Minor. There are two central themes in these first 11 verses. And the first is this, we have received so much. In verse 1, we read, we have received a precious faith. Now think about that. In other words, our faith is not based on what we earn or deserve. We don't deserve anything. We're sinners. We deserve God's judgment. But instead of judgment, God gives us forgiveness and new life in Christ, paid for by Jesus on the cross. I'm so thankful today that God grades on the cross, not on the curve. And here's a thought that will blow your mind. Jesus Christ would have gone to that cross if you, even if you had been the only person on earth. So great is his love for you. In verse 3 we read, his divine power has given us everything we need, and that divine power is called the Holy Spirit. Little boy asked his father one day, Daddy, is, is the Holy Spirit a ghost, or is he like a cloud floating around? And the father whispered a silent prayer for guidance. And then he asked his little son a question. He said, son, have you ever felt really close to God? And the little boy nodded his head. And his father said, that was the Holy Spirit touching your heart. One of the Greek words used to describe the Holy Spirit is parakletos. P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-O-S. Parakletos. And it literally means battle partner. And it comes from a military context. Back in ancient days in the Greek army, soldiers went into combat as two-men teams. Everybody had a battle partner, a parakletos. And the battle partner was there to help you up if you fell down, to supply what you needed, and to cover your backside. Oh, I like to think about the Holy Spirit as my parakletos, who picks me up when I stumble, who supplies what I need, who covers my backside. I like to think that the Holy Spirit has our backs. I heard about a, a married couple who seemed unable to have a child, and so they adopted a little boy. Well, as often happens, very soon thereafter, the wife became pregnant. And she produced uh, another baby boy. And uh, the two little brothers were close to the same age, and they were in the first grade together. And on the first day of school, one of the brothers was introducing himself and his brother to the class. And he said, Jimmy and me are brothers. One of us is adopted, but I can't remember which one. Now, that word adoption is absolutely beautiful. I love it because each of us 
is a child of God by adoption. Yes. God reached out to us first, saying, I want, I want you to be my child. And then when we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we confirm the adoption. And it's official then. We are then God's children by adoption. We are heirs with Christ. We are saved, forgiven, and spirit-filled. And so the first truth I'm declaring to you this morning is we have received so much. And then that moves us to the second truth. In response, we must grow and be fruitful. In verse 5, St. Peter urges us to make every effort to add to our faith. Doesn't mean that we have to have more faith in Jesus. No, it means that our faith ought to lead to growth. And he lists the following areas in which we should grow. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And he calls us to possess these qualities in increasing measure. And if we grow in these areas, we will make our calling and election sure. In other words, our growth in Christ will confirm that we are his adopted children. A Christian is either growing or declining spiritually, but never standing still. Are you a growing Christian? The brilliant sociologist George Barna for years has surveyed American Christians about their faith. He's written many books, and he's come up with many conclusions, some of which are rather sad. He concluded after all these surveys that most American Christians are not growing. That is, they're not involved in any intentional effort to grow their faith. He found that only one in four attend Sunday school. Only one in seven is being spiritually monitored or mentored by someone. Only one in nine is attending a special class or reading a particular book for the purpose of increasing their faith. And so Barner concludes that most American Christians believe their main spiritual task is maintenance, not growth. What about you? Are you into maintenance or growth? Are you growing spiritually? Now we're going to have a test. Now you're going to need that uh, outline in front of you because I'm going to ask you seven questions for the purpose of self-examination. And don't worry, because this test is biblical. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So, I'm going to invite you to grade yourself on each of these seven. The grades one to ten. One means very poor. One of our worshipers at the early service said, uh, Brother Bill, I gave myself a minus one on one of your questions. No, no, no. One is as low as you can go, and 10 is as high as you can go. If you give yourself a 10, it means that you are so near perfection that you have to hold on to the pew to keep from ascending. Yes. <laughs> Question one, is your language pleasing to God? Jesus said people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. That's frightening. 
Again, St. Paul said, let your conversation be always full of grace. Dennis the Menace, that crafty, mischievous child of the comics, often refers to his father's golf words. Do you know what golf words are? As an addicted golfer, I must confess to you how difficult it is not to utter an expletive after a bad shot. There you are. Now you've heard this truth about computers. Garbage in, garbage out. It is also true of our hearts and minds. Garbage in, garbage out. Jesus expressed it this way. The good person brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. In other words, what you take into your mind has a way of coming out of your mouth. And if you feed your mind with filthy movies and television, sooner or later some of the filth will come out of your mouth. Instead, St. Paul urged us to think about whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable. Think about that, and that will come out of your mouth. All right, give yourself a grade, one to ten. On your language, is it pleasing to God? <clears throat> Question two, are you giving at least 10% of your income to God's work? The prophet Malachi in our Bible said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The most captivating and tempting false god in America is money. And Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. One or the other has to have the upper hand. The Bible commands us to give the first 10% of our income to the Lord as a thanks offering. And the primary purpose of tithing is not to raise money for the church. The primary purpose is to grow the disciples of Jesus. Because you cannot grow in Christ if you aren't growing in your giving. Think about this. Tithing is, uh, is also a key way of protecting us from the sin of greed. It's almost impossible to give 10% of your income, that's a lot of money, and still love money. Oh, no. Can't do it. On the other hand, it is so very natural and fulfilling to give 10% to the Lord Jesus when you think about all he is doing, has done, and will do in our lives. And if you love him above all else, how can you resist giving at that level or above? In fact, after a while, you're not satisfied to stay at the minimal level. You want to get above that. Are you growing in your giving? Give yourself a grade, one to 10. Question three, do you have Christian love in your heart toward people with whom you disagree? Jesus commanded, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When you see people whom you dislike on television, in the neighborhood, at the workplace, do you have Christian love in your heart toward them? I didn't ask whether you like them or not. Has nothing to do with liking. You can't command somebody to like somebody. That's an emotional reaction. Christian love is very different. It's not an emotional reaction. It's a decision. 
It's a decision to seek what is genuinely best for another person, whether you like him or her or not. About six weeks ago, a Baptist minister in Hong Kong set us a splendid example in what it means to love an enemy. Pastor Chu Yu Ming is a 73-year-old leader of the democratic forces in Hong Kong. And as you know, they're at war with the Chinese communists who are intent on taking away their freedom. And on April the 9th, a Chinese communist judge convicted Pastor Chu and his associates of, listen to this charge, conspiracy to commit public nuisance. Yeah. They were convicted. And then Pastor Chu was given a chance to speak to the court. And with his Chinese communist enemies seated right there, he stood up and said this, we have no regrets, we hold no grudges, no anger, no grievances. We do not give up. In the words of Jesus, happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them, end of quote. What a witness, what a witness in front of their enemies. And we should pray for Pastor Chu. When we consider what Pastor Chu has suffered and is suffering, then the offenses that we have suffered sort of pale by comparison. How are we treating those who have offended us, those who have mistreated us, those whom we dislike? Give yourself a grade, one to ten. How are you dealing with those kind of folks? Question four. Are prayer and Bible reading essential parts of your daily schedule? Do you agree with the psalmist who said, your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path? And in Luke chapter 18, we read, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Satan has a three-point strategy for defeating you and me, and he never changes because it's effective. Three points. Keep them out of church, out of the Bible, and out of prayer. And if he can do two out of three, he'll beat us most every time. Keep them out of church, out of the Bible, and out of prayer. Now, there's some, there some folks who don't think those are necessary, who don't think that uh, we really need all three, but they are essential if we are to follow Jesus. There are some church members who never open a Bible during the week. The only Bible reading they hear is what the preacher does on Sunday morning. And that's a shame. That's a recipe for spiritual starvation. Just imagine how you would feel if you got only one meal per week. Do you have a dedicated time each day when you open God's Word and talk with God in prayer? Give yourself a grade, 1 to 10. Are prayer and Bible reading essential parts of your daily schedule? 1 to 10. Question 5. Are your sexual thoughts and actions in harmony with Holy Scripture? Jesus addressed our sexuality in both positive and negative terms. 
He said, blessed are the pure in heart. But he also said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our sexuality is a precious gift from God as long as we follow God's guidelines. There is only one sexual relationship approved by God in the Bible, and that is between husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. And in that context, sex is one of God's most wonderful blessings. It allows a unique communion of two hearts, bodies, and minds. A husband and wife becoming one flesh is about as close to heaven as one can experience here on earth. But when sex is ripped from that beautiful setting by Satan, it is one of the most destructive forces on earth. There is today a dangerous sex-related addiction across America that is ripping at our nation's moral fabric. And it is not illegal. This addiction has enslaved over 40 million people, and every year it brings in over $97 billion in profit for its producers. I'm talking about pornography, especially the Internet variety. Experts claim that pornography was a key factor in 56% of all the divorces that happened last year in America. And I feel sure that some persons listen to me this morning are slaves to this addiction because it gets into churches and every other context in America. And if that is your addiction today, it is time with God's help to repent. Now it's time to grade yourself. Are your sexual thoughts and actions in harmony with Holy Scripture? One to ten. Question six. How faithful are you in church attendance? The psalmist expressed what should be in every Christian's heart. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But there's some church members who are in what I call the once a month club. And they believe that if they're in church once a month, that qualifies them to be called active member of a church. But the primary reason to be in church every Sunday is because Jesus is here. And if I'm not here, he'll miss me. Because Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And Jesus has a blessing for you and me every Sunday if we are here to receive it. There's a whole lot of wisdom in a little poem that I learned a long time ago. Whenever I pass the village church, I stop to pay a visit for fear that when I'm carried in, the Lord will ask, who is it? <laughs> Give yourself a grade on church attendance, one to ten. How are you doing? And here is the seventh and final question. How humble are you? St. Paul admonished all Christians to be completely humble and gentle. And Jesus said, if you're invited to a dinner party, don't go to the head table. Go to the lowest position. And then perhaps the hostess will come along and say, oh, oh we need to move you up. 
And then you will be honored, of course. When you're with a group of people, do you feel a need to be the center of attention? Or are you content to be in a supporting role? It is a fact that the more secure you are in the love of Christ, the less you will need to be complimented or promoted or boosted. The more secure you are in Christ, the less tendency you will have to boast about yourself. It's just a fact. You can be comfortable then in being humble. The late U.S. Uh, Congressman Hale Boggs from Louisiana was invited to speak to a huge conference one night in Washington, D.C. Several thousand people filled this huge ballroom of a hotel. And Hale Boggs had prepared well. He delivered an address that was insightful, humorous, well-prepared, and well-delivered. And when he finished, they gave him a standing ovation. And uh, he felt really good. He and his wife were riding home later in a taxi. And uh, Hale was uh, really, really proud of himself. He sort of leaned back in his chair there on the back seat, and, and he said, uh, you know, honey, th there really aren't very many truly great men in Washington, D.C. anymore. And his wife said, that's right. And there's one less than you think. <laughs> How fortunate are you if you have a spouse or a good friend like that who will bring you on down to earth when you're soaring a little bit too high. Now, try to be humble as you grade yourself on humility, one to ten. If you give yourself a ten, that disqualifies you. Immediately erase it and go to one. Remember that every Christian is either growing or declining spiritually, and our challenge is to grow. And the very last word from St. Peter in his second letter is this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In closing, let me tell you a true anecdote from the life of Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first man to conquer Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. But before he conquered that great mountain, he had failed four or five times. And after one of his unsuccessful attempts, he stood at the base of the mountain, thoroughly angry and defiant, and he shook his fist at the mountain. And he said, I'll conquer you yet, because you're as big as you're going to get, but I'm still growing. So should you and I be, growing in Christ until the great day when he calls us home.